The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. As uh, Jan mentioned, I just uh, put out a book uh, called Managing the China Challenge, How to Achieve Corporate Success in the People's Republic. Uh, I want to spend 15 to 20 minutes kind of laying out uh, some of the main points in that book. But then I'm happy to take questions on that book or that. But I'm happy to take, take any question that has the word China in it. Okay, and so, uh, uh, the ones without China in it or ones that don't end in a question mark uh, are not welcome. Okay. Uh, seriously, our attention generally focuses on national level issues in economic and trade relations with China, on issues like intellectual property protection, uh, indigenous innovation, government procurement, the anti monopoly law the exchange rate, and so forth. And we deal with these in no small part on a national government to national government uh, basis. But the vast majority of significant decisions in economic and trade relations are not made by the national governments of either side. Uh, they're made on the U.S. side, mostly by our corporations and all of China. On the Chinese side, both by local governments and by corporations. Uh, what I seek to do in this book is first to explain the political economy of China. Political economy, simple idea is how the government interacts with the economy and what the consequences of that are. And then to take that explanation and ask what are the implications for the strategies of multinational corporations that want to deal with China. Those implications aren't that quite far reaching. Uh, I obviously can't go through a full review of the book here, but let me give you a, a feel for at least some key uh, parts of the argument. Uh, a good part of the political economy argument uh, focuses on the uh, uh, on the strategies that uh, local government leaders pursue in China. Uh, by local government, I mean uh, four of the five levels of government in China, the province, the city, the county, and the township. And look at the incentives of those leaders and how they interact with the economies that they uh, govern. Uh, the, and my argument is, in part, if you look at those incentives and look at the uh, actions that they uh, nurture, uh, among other things, I think you will likely conclude that the current Chinese effort to shift to a new development model and the 12 5 year plan recognizes that the model they follow today is now pretty well exhausted and they need to shift to a new model. Their capacity to shift to a new model is very limited. It's going to happen very slowly uh, and it probably won't get underway in a major way for another three years or so. Uh, the uh, political economy of China is such also that over a period of years the Chinese Communist Party, if it were accurately named, and that was if its name reflected what it really is, would be called the Chinese Bureaucratic Capitalist Party. If you think of the Chinese, people always chuckle when I say that, it's absolutely true. If you think of the Chinese Communist Party as communist, you will guess wrong. Virtually every time you see to anticipate how they will handle the new issue. If you think of them as bureaucratic capitalists, your percentage will go way up. Okay? So I'm quite serious. Bureaucratic capitalism doesn't mean liberal free market. It means bureaucratic capitalism, entrepreneurial bureaucracy, if you will. Uh, and uh, this bureaucratic capitalist party operates in a fashion that rapid economic growth, rapid growth of GDP is a necessary outcome of the way the political system itself functions. In contradistinction, for example, to India, where one could argue that the uh, government operates in a way that more often than not makes even rapid economic development more difficult through bureaucracy and all kinds of regulation and that kind of thing. In China, the dynamics of the political system interact with the economy in a way that drives economic development, uh, GDP growth at a rate that typically exceeds what national leaders want to see happen by three or four percent per year. So really, truly extraordinary. What's going on there? Uh, let me uh, uh, explain what I would term the deal. This deal, by the way, is not written down anywhere or anything like that. My kind of way of summarizing the dynamics of the uh, system from provincial level down to township level. Uh, and those are not inconsiderable, even between the national level of Beijing and provincial level. 
deal is as follows. Take any two levels, say uh, province to city, as an example. Uh, in the province to city relationship, the provincial leaders literally decide who the city leaders will be. And the point that there are processes that dress that up, but fundamentally that's what happens at the end of the day. Uh, so the provincial level would appoint the municipal level leaders. Having appointed them, they give them sufficient flexibility so that if they are entrepreneurial and capable, they will be able to make their GDP grow every year. If they succeed in doing that, they are significantly rewarded. They're rewarded in part by a formal, annual, written, scored evaluation of their performance. Uh, the largest single number of points in that evaluation every year is directly reflective, or only slightly indirectly reflective, of how fast you made your GDP growth that year. That is, so they are highly incentivized to be able to check that box. Uh, they, uh, if you do well on your evaluation, you are then teed up for promotion to govern a richer economy, you know, a higher level of the system, at a more prosperous uh, region of the country. Uh, part of this bargain also is that while you have the flexibility to make your GDP grow, and you'll be rewarded for doing so, uh, there is not effective close scrutiny of your activities to enrich yourself and your family uh, on the basis of that GDP growth. In other words, to participate in that GDP growth on a personal level. Uh, the limits on this are several fold. One is you cannot uh, openly criticize the leaders above you uh, appointed you or the central level leaders. That will clearly be a career stopper. Uh, secondly, uh, you have to maintain basic social order. So very large-scale mass incidents will be a serious black mark uh, on your uh, evaluation for the year. Uh, and thirdly, you can't allow any major embarrassments to occur uh, in your bailiwick, such as a national product safety scandal or something like that that demonstrates uh, some of the uh, problems of the system itself. But if you check those boxes, you have them criticize higher levels, you haven't had major mass incidents, you haven't had any huge embarrassments. If you check those boxes, the key is that you made your GDP growth that year. Uh, and if you've gotten a little wealthier in the process, that's forgiven because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. So for lower level leaders, the incentives are first of all to produce GDP growth and then also to maintain social order and prevent major embarrassing incidents. And on that basis, they do very well. Now the other piece of the puzzle here is if you look at the relationship between the government and uh, the economy, you find that government engagement of the economy, when I say government, again, it's each of these levels of government, so it's not one unified thing, but a lot of actors. Uh, uh, the government engagement of the economy is, goes way beyond what exists in every advanced industrial society, which is government engagement that takes the form of monetary and fiscal policy, law and regulation, and sometimes sectoral policies. What you have in China is what I would term microeconomic engagement, engagement enterprise by enterprise. And local governments act to nurture and protect the development of local enterprises because they are evaluated on the basis of the success of those enterprises. So their interests as a government are very tightly tied to the interests of the key enterprises in their daily works. Uh, this dynamic produces a lot of important results. First of all, it produces extremely rapid GDP growth. So, the, so you find that the central government typically is unable to keep GDP growth anywhere near the level that it wishes to keep it. It gets vastly exceeded year by year because this is a growth machine that's been created. And the people who are promoted at this, if you think about the incentives for that, are some of the most capable entrepreneurs in China who also know how to govern a territory. So you get a, a kind of selection bias here in favor of tremendous talent in growing GDP while maintaining basic social stability uh, and covering up any problems that, that develop in the process. Uh, so that rapid GDP growth is a natural and uh, unstoppable outcome of this. But there are other dimensions to that growth that are more problematic. 
Uh, for example, you get uh, a serious tendency toward overinvestment in capital-intensive projects. Uh, you do that in part because they're high prestige. They generate jobs immediately. They, in nominal ways, at least contribute to GDP growth because you don't subtract damage that they do from environmental exfoliation or that kind of thing. And they have tremendous money streams attached to them, uh, which enables a lot of people to share in the benefits of that project. In other words, a lot of skimming takes place. Secondly, you get very important enforcement of environmental laws and regulations. Uh, you do so because those laws and regulations can get in the way of GDP growth. Uh, so, for example, uh, this was now a few years ago, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency had a news conference where he said over the previous four years, uh, they had received 100, I'm sorry, information on 70,000 serious violations of environmental laws and resulting incidents, uh, of which they had addressed, not resolved, addressed 500 out of 70,000. Uh, one reporter at the press conference chirped up and said, why only 500? And the answer was, almost all the rest were on the direct orders of local government officials to violate the environmental laws. They wanted to maintain rapid economic growth. The environmental law puts the enforcement power in the hands of local government officials. So you've got a problem there. Uh, thirdly, uh, this leads to high risks of various sorts. Let me just name one. Uh, intellectual property theft. Uh, you know, every mass industrial country in the world went through a stage of development that was based on intellectual property theft. The only one that didn't do that was England, and it's only because England went first, there was no one to steal from. Uh, the U.S. stole massively from, in, from England, everyone stole from everyone else. It's been just a stage of development. You gradually evolve out of that as you get native terms that begin to develop intellectual property become big players in your own political system and become major advocates for protection of intellectual property. So you get the, the balance shifts over time. No one's perfect on intellectual property, but you get a significant evolution. Uh, in China, uh, they clearly are not at the point where some of this dynamic is now playing out. They're Chinese firms with serious intellectual property. There are now IP courts in Shanghai and Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and Beijing. Uh, the problem is that the uh, counterfeit operations in China are generally not in Shanghai, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, or Beijing. Uh, they're in a gazillion other cities around China. The law says that where the respect of intellectual property is, the case is adjudicated in the locale where a counterfeit enterprise uh, does its business. Not where it sells stuff, but where it produces counterfeits. Uh, but those enterprises in localities around China are every bit as valuable to their local leaders as are legitimate enterprises to the leaders in China and places like that. And so the local leaders protect them. They protect them through control and courts uh, and through not implementing uh, the adverse court judgment of any significant. So it tends to be very, very difficult to track them down. You're going to have to change the political economy of China to enable violations that hurt business in Shanghai to be prosecuted effectively because Shanghai's reach doesn't get out to these other localities even though it is Shanghai-based enterprises that are getting undercut by the counterfeiters uh, in these other localities. Uh, fourth, you get significant local protectionism uh, and uh, it makes it harder to develop the efficiencies of a national market or even very large regional markets in China because there are all kinds of problems that you run into with local governments protecting uh, their own firms against products produced elsewhere in China that are coming into the locale. Uh, they're very open to products produced elsewhere as long as their own local firms aren't producing the same kind of product. But if they are, you run into all kinds of problems. I can give you examples of all of these uh, afterwards if you want to pursue any of them in Q&A. Uh, but that certainly reduces overall economic efficiency in China. If you look at the Chinese economy, a lot of localities are developing extremely rapidly. It's just enormously impressive to go around China and look at what's happening in a very large number of places. Then you look at the macro data, and while GDP is developing very rapidly, economic efficiency is very low. On a comparative basis, China has a highly inefficient economy. This is in part because of this political economy, where uh, you know, in the Pearl River Delta, every major city wants to have its own international airport. Right. 
Because that's what a major city will do, and you can make money on it, it, so you have more international airports than any rational person would ever devise. Right? You get that kind of thing duplicated. Go up to the Yangtze River from uh, Shanghai, go up to Nanjing. Just count how many ports you see along that river. You'll find every town has its own ports. Uh, you know, because that's what you do. You look inward to develop your own local uh, GDP. Uh, and then finally, and very consequentially, you also have local governments, frankly, successfully, in a number of instances, nurturing highly competitive local enterprises that have a strategy of building scale, not competing with multinationals in Shanghai and Beijing, but rather in tier two and tier three cities. You know, there's a multitude of well over 100 cities that are certainly uh, have a population of more than a million people, are rapidly developing the middle class and some real wealth in them, uh, but have not been the focus of attention for most multinational corporations who have gone to China generated to target what well, turned the top of the pyramid. You know, the, the very wealthy or upper middle class of these Chinese who live in the big coastal cities who attach a lot of cachet to international products and labels and that kind of thing and will pay a premium. So you can bring your international products to these places, you know, do a little local modification to give them a Chinese feel uh, and sell them at good prices and do reasonably well. Right. Uh, the problem with that strategy is that it is a uh, strategy that will not long remain viable uh, because you are now having a lot of Chinese, small Chinese firms starting to try to gain scale uh, by uh, appealing to the price points and requirements of these markets in tier two and tier three cities. And once they gain scale, the strategy is to go after the multinationals at the top of the pyramid. Uh, and frankly, if you wait until that occurs in a major way, you're dead. Because their price points are way below the price points of multinationals. So, to my mind, the implications for multinational corporate strategy of this whole picture I've, I've outlined here are really quite wide-ranging. I don't, I can't possibly get into all of them, but let me just give you a flavor. And again, please pursue anything you want to pursue in more depth uh, when we turn to our Q&A in a couple of minutes. Uh, First, it should be obvious from what I just said, I think multinationals need to really take extremely seriously uh, tier two and tier three cities as a major focus of their uh, business development strategies. Uh, that is in part uh, to prevent Chinese competitors from gaining scale without serious competition. Uh, I mean, you want to be competing there and uh, hopefully either preempting the, the competition or if they're very good, try to buy them. Uh, and it's also to tap into major sources of Chinese wealth that are now developing in these places. And these are very considerable pools of uh, consumer capability. Uh, to penetrate these markets, though, uh, I mean, my rule of thumb is any product that was designed in the United States is over-engineered for any tier two or tier three consumer in China. Right? It's just it's more elaborate, more functionality. Uh, in many cases, uh, higher quality uh, in various ways than this market requires, and price higher than this market can tolerate. So uh, I think it's a mistake for multinationals to follow going forward to follow a strategy of taking. Uh, products that they develop for advanced industrial countries, uh, modifying them and trying to drain some price out of them to sell them into these major developing metropolises in China. By the way, when I said these places are mostly cities of a million or more, China has about 160 cities, each which is a population of a million or more. America has nine. Right? So this is, you know, we're talking serious scale here. Right? Uh, the, uh, you know, there's no way I know we have some executives here. Correct me if I'm wrong. My sense from talking with a lot of executives over many years is if you take a product and see how much cost you can drain out of it uh, and still sell it at a profit, you get a gold star if you can drain 25% of the cost out of it. But if you look at the equipment product in a tier two city in China and it's selling for only 35 or 40% of the price of your charging. So you have to drain 60 to 70% cost out to be competitive. You can't do that. The only way you can do it is to take the real 
competitive advantages of multinationals, which say very high quality management, uh, understanding of finance, better quality R&D, deeper pockets, uh, understanding how to integrate across the value chain, better branding capabilities, better advertising capabilities in many instances related to branding, better after-sales service experience, right? So you take the whole package of competitive advantages that multinationals have and develop research teams to go out to the new target markets, do serious research as to what has to be the functionality of a product in order for it to, to have a demand in that market. And what is the price point at which you have to be able to sell that product in order to have a market clear in price, still have a, a, a reasonable return on investment? And then you set your design team at work to produce that product. And the design team had better be composed of both international engineers and local Chinese engineers because you get a mix of quality and kind of thinking lean that works well if you can develop right kind of design teams uh, for that. Uh, but to be able to do that, it suggests you really need to vest a lot more authority in a China country team effort than most multinationals are comfortable doing. Because after all, most multinationals basically have global business units that pursue global strategies and have global P&L responsibility, you know, profit and loss responsibilities. You overlay a China country team in that, and it doesn't fit very well. Right? Especially if it doesn't have P&L responsibilities. And you want them to have enough clout to have clout at corporate headquarters, where corporate headquarters are dominated by the global business units. Right? So it's very hard to get that kind of fit to work. But without it, these various global companies are very unlikely to put together the capabilities necessary to compete in the newly emerging tier two, tier three city markets in China. So we're going to end up being, I think, quite vulnerable to some very, very nasty surprises uh, going forward. <coughs> um, and then finally, there's an element in the book, and again, I'm just doing a lot sort of work here, but there's a, there's a whole part of the book that tries to explain decision-making in the Chinese political system. I don't mean at the top bureau level, you know, the top national, I'm talking about at the level that corporations have, have to be concerned about. And it lays out uh, how authority is allocated, and I mean, the facto, how it actually is distributed in China, and what the behavioral consequences of that are. And the bottom line conclusion is for most issues that are of concern to business people, uh, on the Chinese side, uh, no single person has the authority to say yes or no, uh, especially to say yes. Uh, what they generally need to do internally in China is to create a consensus to say yes among a group of people, no one of whom has authority over all the others. Uh, and that uh, it is incumbent, to my mind, because you're going to be serious about business in China, to understand that allocation of authority, who has what kinds of authority among, you know, given the projects you're interested in, uh, what their interests are, and get involved in helping to create that consensus. I've always been amazed that when I meet business people who have worked in China for years, they don't know anything about the system of ranks you know, in Chinese companies and the Chinese government. They don't know about the division of responsibility uh, uh, they, don't know, they don't know the basics, the kind of building blocks of authority in China. These are all things you can learn quite easily if you ask, if you understand the answers. And on the basis of that, the Chinese political system is much less of a black box at an operational level than most people seem to assume it is. So this book tries to provide some guidance on what you should ask and why and how to interpret that and use it for business purposes. So let me conclude by saying, uh, first, the China market has evolved to the point where there is real money to be made, but this requires far-reaching changes in many of the standard operating procedures of multinational corporations. Uh, the good news is, to my mind, that these adjustments, if done effectively, will create capabilities in the corporations to compete more effectively not only in China, but very likely in places like India and Brazil and South Africa, etc., others in other big emerging markets, because you'll have a capacity to build products that are good enough, that are the right level of functionality for the markets you're seeking to, to uh, get to, and are priced at a level that make them feasible in those markets and still assure an adequate return on capital. And let me conclude by noting that if you look at the 
statistic for 2010, 70% of global growth came from the emerging markets. 75% of growth in consumption globally came from the emerging markets. 40% of global GDP was accounted for by the emerging markets. All those numbers are going up very rapidly, and China alone counts for about half of those numbers. So this is a game worth playing. Uh, this is where future growth really is. But I don't think we can fully capture future growth, benefits of future growth, for American-based corporations unless there are the kinds of adjustments made that enable you to compete effectively where the demand side of the equation, the structure of demand, is really changed. After all, we're talking about shifting demand, the demand that drives the global economy from the one billion people who are just like us Right, uh, grew up in, in an industrialized country and have the sensibilities and preferences and all that of that. To the three billion people who are in emerging markets, and they're going to be the drivers. So we have we have to learn how to serve those drivers much more effectively. Anyway, I hope that's been helpful to kind of set at least an agenda that may provoke uh, some questions. And again, any question with the word China with a question mark at the end is more than welcome. Okay, thank you. Ned, let's start with you, but will you ask a question? Will you please give your name and where you're from? I spent 20 years living what you just described, but I'm sort of interested in my question is this. I get all what you're talking about, and I get the full idea of the relevance of China population, and maybe other markets too, if you feel there. But the actual, right now, the actual treatment of the foreign investors, the shelf life of a foreign investor's idea in product development, whether it's tier one, tier two, prognosis for that. What's your, what's your reaction? Now, I know we have some celebrated things, but there's a lot of other stuff that's gone on over a number of years that would have a lot of failures of foreign interests trying to succeed in China, probably because of what you said. But, what, what is the going forward, stronger China, more complicated China, treatment of foreign investors? Did you all hear the question? Okay, from now on, we'll uh, wait till the microphone comes to me. Okay. Uh, basically, the question is uh, going forward, how, what kind of future does foreign investment have in China? Uh, with the implication being that the Chinese are going to get tougher on foreign investment. Is that fair? Oh. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, if you look now at the public opinion polls among American companies in China, two things stand out. One is they've never had it so good in terms of overall profitability and return on investment. Better than global averages by far. Most of them had the best year ever last year. Uh, the other thing is they're very worried about the future. Uh, because they see regulatory changes in regulatory substance and style that they find worrisome. Uh, they're very worried about things like uh, indigenous innovation linked to government procurement. Uh, they're very worried about leveraging technology out of companies in order to play in the China sandbox. Uh, so the things like clean energy, that's especially relevant because we develop a lot of R&D here, but we don't have the financing and regulatory environment to actually test it and scale out here. They go to China and then it costs them their technology. So there are a lot of concerns about the future. Uh, I think that uh, this is going to be a market that is going to be tough, uh, but it's also a market that you either uh, figure out how to do relatively well in or die. Right? So it isn't as if there's an option of saying, well, China's getting tough, I think I'll just sell in Peoria. You know, that isn't, that isn't the way to handle it. And to my mind, as you become broader based in China, uh, you develop more of a capability to be resilient there. Uh, in terms of innovation, you have to innovate ahead of your Chinese competitors. I mean, you know, that's, that's the name of the game. You cannot protect innovation in China for very long. So you have to keep moving on it. But again, you know, that's life. Uh, you know, this relates to something else. We've gotten very accustomed to a world in which uh, things like intellectual property rights are at least moderately well protected. Right? There are places where they're a real problem, but you know, overall is a global regime that has permitted substantial innovation to occur and rewards to be reaped from that innovation. Uh, we could be 
that kind of level where that's less true. Where uh, a more significant chunk of the global economy simply doesn't value that. Uh, and has the capability more effectively to reduce the time from innovation to copy to successful copying and commercialization. Uh, even in broader terms, let me say, uh, you know, we're all quite accustomed to a world where basically what's called the Washington Consensus is defined the kind of framework. You know, this is the notion that to be successful, you need high quality uh, capital markets, you need good quality institutions, you need rule of law, basically you need liberal democracy, you know, uh, it's a whole package of things. Uh, our problem is that China has succeeded relatively well, and the only thing they follow from Washington consensus is being relatively open to uh, imports and, and being an effective export. Otherwise, they've forgotten the rest. And they've outperformed every other major economy. So, uh, we have now we are inviting them as we must, not only China, but India and others, to play a larger role in defining the global rules of the game. So you go from G7 to G20, you know, look at the IMF, there now more, there's now more pressure to have a uh, head of the IMF who's not European and not American. You know, and this, you know, this is just it's the way the world is evolving. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's a Beijing consensus that would embrace Washington consensus, but to my mind it does mean that the, uh, the, the assumptions about at least the aspiration, the global aspirational priority given to the Washington consensus now have to be uh, uh, held in check. Uh, that things are changing and the rules are going to be changing. Not phenomenally and not completely, but significantly over time. And so one of the things that I think executives have to be very sensitive to is to keep an eye on how those changes are moving and what the implications are for your own corporation and part of the strategy. Just a a lot is in motion. Uh, For for a multinational that wants to penetrate... Can you introduce yourself? T.K. Chang, I'm a lawyer. for a multinational that wants to penetrate its uh, tier two or tier three market with products that are lower price and just good enough, doesn't it uh, risk uh, degrading its brand name and brand reputation, which from a global point of view could be its most important asset? Uh, look, the, the risk, uh, I have talked about it uh, in my former remark, but, but the risks in China to global reputation are huge. Uh, one of which is how far do you go and kind of dumb them down products in order to appeal to, to that kind of market. I would argue as long as you keep your products safe uh, and you uh, don't engage in corruption to push your product, uh, you can protect your global brand. You say, look, we're, we're two-tier. We, we produce different things for different markets. That's not, you know, market segmentation is hardly a new idea out there, right? Uh, the, uh, but there are huge reputational risks. Uh, in China, it's a high-risk environment. Partly, you know, there's a lot of corporations going to China because you can drive down costs in your supply chain, right? But in China, you know, you can you can drive down costs. If you drive them down far enough, people got to make those costs by cheating on what they're doing. You know, using substandard products, you know, substandard components and that kind of thing, right? Uh, because they need the business. And it can be very difficult to follow a supply chain three or four levels deep and actually be on top of things sufficiently that you can protect yourself in the age of the internet when an NGO is going to come along spot something three levels deep in your supply chain and your corporate headquarters going to find out about it when the newspaper is calling them an hour after the NGO spotted it in rural China. Right? And that's the way the modern world is. So there are, you know, there are just all kinds of dilemmas and risks. In fact, I have a whole chapter in the book where, among other things, I set up about, I've got how many, 10 to 15 uh, cases that I know about in China, you know, specific cases of where I don't name names, but, but the dilemmas that people have faced, I mean, they're frankly fairly heroic. But I go back to my earlier comment to Ned, which is they're also unavoidable. I mean, it isn't that you have the option of not dealing with these things. So what you look for is best practices on how to maintain your integrity uh, and 
maintain your power. Nick. Nick Platt, Age Society. Um, Ken, to what extent is the future of Chinese growth dependent on the reform plan, the reform program outlined in the, in the five-year plan, and, and why is that going to be so hard to realize? Well, the, uh, yeah, the current model of development that has served them so well is based on a series of assumptions, almost all of which are at the tail end of their validity. Uh, let me give you four or five key ones just to illustrate what I'm saying. And by the way, one job I would agree with everything I'm saying. Okay, this is not some you know nutty Western critique of that. You know, he'd agree with everything. I even think we can tell we agree with most. The uh, there's an assumption of a you know in practical terms virtually unlimited supply of young, cheap, flexible labor. Okay, that has now begun to shrink. The people in the 18 to 32 age bracket has begun to go down. The massive turning point occurs about three years from now. By a little after 2025, China has the age pyramid of Florida. Okay, by about 2035, it is older than Japan. Uh, so wage rates are going up, and flexibility in labor use is going down. Uh, secondly, they assume that there is a virtually unlimited popular tolerance during a period of transition for inequality of wealth uh, and for environmental degradation and for corruption. You know, problems of transition from a planned economy to a market economy, this too shall pass kind of thing. What they're finding from public opinion surveys is that tolerance is pretty well run out. Uh, there's a lot of popular anger over these things, and increasingly social unrest over them. Thirdly, they assumed that they could develop now and clean up later, so that, as many other countries did, right? So environmentally, we can do what we need to do to get rich, and then we can use some of our wealth to clean up the mess that we made while we're getting rich. What they're finding now is we can't continue that. Uh, their environmental situation is so dire that it now costs them different analysts have different numbers, but somewhere between 8 and 15% of GDP per year. But more than that, there are absolute bottlenecks that run into from depletion of usable resources that are just absolutely dramatic. To me, the most uh, telling one is water, which doesn't happen to be something that you can import. Uh, and they are, if anyone wants to pursue water, we'll spend the rest of the time on it, but it is really a startling story. Uh, and even affects energy. They don't have enough water in North China to tap fully their coal reserves in North China. It takes a lot of water to produce coal, and they don't have the water. You know, so, the, so they've now become big coal importers. And you know, this is really a, a very striking uh, set of problems they have environmentally. And then four, they've assumed that the world would tolerate uh, uh, significant ongoing increases in Chinese exports. Right? You each have your own evaluation of how open the world will be to that. But in part, that was based on assumption of uh, rates of growth in the mass industrial economies that may have been valid in 2007 and early 2008, but are not valid in 2011. Okay? And uh, in addition to that, the politics are such that the Chinese are nervous about whether they're going to face increasing protectionism. So all of that is driving them to, to try to shift to a significantly different model of economic development. Uh, one that first of all has sectoral reallocation away from, uh, again, this, you know, these are all in percentage terms, not 100%, but uh, significantly away from uh, heavy industry and capital intensive projects in the direction of developing services within the industrial sector going more toward the high tech, uh, uh, not so energy intensive, not so heavily polluting industries, uh, increasing domestic consumer demand, so it's become less reliant on exports as a driver of growth. Uh, you know, a whole series of things like that, again, they're laid out quite clearly in the 12 five year plan. The problem is that so long as you maintain the incentives that I outlined, as you go down through this multi-layered political system. Remember, this is a system that governs a continent. This is not Singapore. You know? So long as you maintain those incentives, the central government can easily put a lot of money behind its new priorities. But the money ends up 
generally not going where it is intended to go. As it filters down through this system, what you get at the bottom of the system in terms of actual outcomes are more energy-intensive projects. You know, the, the, you know the, the same set of biases that I indicated before. You would have to, if you really want to change this in a serious way, you have to change the incentives. Uh, but to change the incentives to get this new order of priorities going, you would, among other things, effectively have to take money out of the hands of officials uh, among territorial leaders at every level of this political system. Uh, they are already into a succession. They are not about to make those kinds of new demands, new kinds of political reform demands, before this succession has played itself out. I mean, there is no sign for it whatsoever, as far as I can see, which means we're waiting until at least 2014 before we see whether the new leadership of the top is prepared to use a lot of political capital to try to change the incentive structure all the way through this national hierarchy, which will then take years after that to actually put into effect, even if they've got the fire in the belly to do it. What's the bottom line? Most of the priorities you see in the 12 5 year plan are also in the 11th five year plan. What you'll find is that the only thing the 11th five year plan really did was to exceed its GDP growth targets, which it exceeded by quite a bit. On all these other issues, it generally failed. There was one exception that improved energy efficiency per dollar of GDP, because it made that a very high priority. Uh, but China's energy efficiency per dollar of GDP, uh, before they started this, was um, three times worse than America's, and we are profligate. Nine times worse than Japan's. I mean, the Chinese were just terrible on this. They had been, they'd gone from being terrible to being very bad. Okay? And are on a trajectory to improve somewhat. But it's all per dollar of GDP. And the rate of growth of GDP is still much higher than the national leaders think is sustainable. And it is pressing the limits of these constraints that I mentioned, these assumptions that are no longer really valid. So I think there it isn't that they're headed for a tipping point and everything collapses. It's that the cost of keeping the game going keeps going up. If you look, the frictional costs of, uh, of the game itself uh, are rising. They are substantial now, and they're rising. And frankly, the national leadership feels, I think, under more than a little threat from the social consequences of this. It's a major reason why you see their reaction to the Jasmine Revolution as being as draconian as it's been. And you can sit back and give the digression here, but let me just spell it out for a minute. You can sit back when, when you know, uh, Tunisia and Egypt erupted, and the Japan, Libya come up home. You know, uh, first thought among China specialists was, well, uh, even though China's authoritarian, that's the only thing it has in common with these places. You know, these places have Mubarak was in office for 30 years, right? The Chinese will change 70% of their top leadership predictably in 2012 and 2013. They have turbulence, right? Uh, you know, most of these Arab states weren't growing very fast, and those that were were doing it on the basis of resource extraction. China's been the fastest growing economy in the world. The Arab states all have huge youth bulges. China doesn't have it. China's moving into a youth shortage. Right? So, very well in common. But the Chinese leadership looked at what was happening and said, oh my God, we're in serious trouble. Right? That's in part because it highlights the, uh, the difficulty of fully understanding the potential consequences of having a, an information society in an authoritarian political system. Right? And so what vulnerabilities protect you? I don't know fully understands that. But it's also very strongly because Chinese over the past year have carried out a series of major social surveys that were internal, had not been published. And what they show is for the first time ever, uh, economic growth is not cutting it. Whereas people are getting angrier at the government and losing trust in the government despite ongoing very rapid economic growth. Right? Why? Because of inequality of wealth, environmental degradation, the same items keep coming up over and over again. Uh, and they don't know what to do about that. But they really don't. But they're feeling very nervous. 
And the immediate response, since this is a political succession and no one wants to take a chance, is greater repression. Uh, I, you know, no one knows what the right mix is, but that's uh, not necessarily an effective response. Thank you, President. Um, hold on for these. Okay, introduce yourself, please. Wu Shinji, a visiting scholar in Columbia University. And, Professor, thank you. And my question is related to appreciation of IND. First question is, what are the challenges? One question. What are the challenges for the multinationals with the appreciation of IND? Thank you. You mean if they do or if they don't? You appreciate the RMB. Right. Well, you know, as always, with currency, it depends upon whether you're importing or exporting, you know, where you're producing and where you're, where you're selling, and how you hedge your currency bets. So there is no single answer to that. Presumably, if China uh, increases the value of the RMB vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar, it will be helpful to U.S. exporters. Uh, and will hurt Chinese exporters into the American market, including multinationals that produce in China for the American market. You know, it just cuts in the other direction. I think the reality is the impact will be very small, though, uh, on Chinese exports to the U.S. Because if you look, you find that uh, the ex-factory price uh, uh, exports from China to North America is generally about 15% of the retail price of that item in the U.S. The rest is shipping, insurance, uh, you know, wholesale retail markets every step of the way, right? And uh, so suppose Chinese revalued by another 15%. Well, then that increases price by 15% of 15%. So you're dealing with maybe 1% to 2%. Right? You know, the price, if these are low-end products and they, you can't tolerate that kind of price change. It doesn't mean the jobs will come back to the U.S. It means they go to Vietnam. Right, or India or somewhere else where they can still meet the price point to sell in the US. So I don't think that the Brendan B, if it goes up to another 15 or 20 percent, something like that over the next two years, uh, I don't think that's going to have a significant impact on US China bilateral trade. I think it'd be quite small. Insofar as it has an effect, it would be more on US exports to China than on Chinese exports to the US. Okay, we only have time for two last questions going to be Patricia and then over to you. This may not lend itself to a short answer, so I won't be offended if, if uh, you, you can't answer it. But um, your comments about going to the second and third tier were very interesting and uh, trying to adapt your product to that market. And my question is, is it primarily the price point um, that is, is the driver in that because I'm just going back to the first question which is if you I don't want to say dumb down your product but if you offer a, a simpler product and embed it in it though is your technology and your innovative capability what prevents sort of your domestic competitors from saying okay this is a great idea we know what the end product is supposed to be out there but we're going to do a dumber version and I mean I'd be very curious for instance what does Apple do with this product from China because I bet everybody wants that latest you know 4G phone and, and, and iPad, but I'm just curious if it is the price point or if is it something else? You know, I, I think, it, first of all, you said adapt your product, and I was saying something else. I was saying build a new product for that. And to me, the model is, uh, in a sense, Tata Motors, when they built the Nano in India. You know, uh, what Rajan right Tata said was, uh, we're going to build a one lap car. Right, their car that basically sells for 2,000 US dollars. Now we'll figure out how to do it and have a profit rate of 10% on our investment. And set the engineers to do it, and they did it. And they revolutionized the way they build a car, the way they source it, the way they put it together, everything in order to come in at that price point. With a, and they cornered the market, you know, for the really low end, above a two wheeler or a three wheeler, but below a full sedan. You got it. Uh, I don't think that kind of stuff can be duplicated, you know, real fast. Maybe I'm wrong in that, but I think in general. Uh, and the uh, and again, the issue is you have to bring to bear your capacity to brand, 
uh, you know, to sell effectively, to brand, to service, you know, provide guarantees, or, you know, warranties, and all that kind of thing. That's what I said. There are a lot of things multinationals bring to the table as part of their toolkit that startup Chinese firms don't know how to do. Right? And so you have to leverage that to win a competitive game. And then finally, if you, uh, I, mean, I actually gave this advice to my, I'll tell you, the, the GM, uh, when uh, they, you know, they bought David Motors, uh, when David Motors was bankrupt in South Korea, in part for the David product line that they thought it could then produce in China, right? And one of their key entry-level cars they were going to do in China uh, a Chinese startup started producing before they got theirs out of the assembly line. The Chinese startup had obviously uh, managed to acquire their engineering data. I mean, but in enormous detail, duplicates. And you know, GM sued them. You know, big mess and everything. My advice to GM was to buy them because I figured these guys are that good. Startup company only been in existence about two to three years. Local government leadership. If they can produce a car that and runs that looks something like yours on the basis of your engineering data, they have talent that you want to acquire. The GM did buy it, they're now one of the most successful car companies in China. Yeah. So, you know, you have to think a little bit creatively about this. Okay, needs to be short questions, short answers. Okay, uh, Lee Wei Wang, student from Chengdu University. A uh, question on your comment about the efficiency of the Chinese governments. Well, the Chinese economy. Sorry. Yeah, economy. But um, you you said at local level it's very inefficient. But when we see at no, I said at a national level it's very inefficient. But you see from the fi- recent financial crisis, it's actually taking very deep initiative and making the case much better than it would otherwise be compared to the U.S. Well, actually, I think that's almost totally apples and oranges. Uh, the uh, the financial crisis in China was a trade crisis, not a financial crisis. Right, their export markets went off a cliff for a period of months, and they adjusted to that through a lot of their introduced a lot of liquidity into the economy. What I'm talking about is efficiency of uh, production, uh, achieving economies of scale. Uh, you know, how do you serve a market, a national market, with uh, and what kind of you know what kind of consumption of your factory inputs do you have? China is way behind the U.S. But in terms of those emergency situations that like the crisis, it's been actually very efficient. But looking at U.S. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this is a longer conversation I have to have for the airport. Let me just make a quick comment. Uh, it is very, China is very capable of unleashing a lot of resources to attack a problem. Okay, That is different from being efficient. Okay, that's a mobilization capability. If you're talking about efficiency, you would ask, have they unleashed the right amount of resources to tackle the problem without wasting a lot of resources? Right? That is not what they're good at. Okay, so that maybe we're just arguing over terminology here, but that's, uh, I meant something different when I said efficiency from what you're now talking about. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.